Thank you all for coming out. I noticed it's a little, little bit earlier than normal for most of you, but I believe it's going to be a blessing. So thank you all. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's start with prayer, and then we're, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Lord Jesus, we do thank you, Father, for this opportunity God, to gather as a church, God, as your called out ones. And I pray, Father, as we go through this growth track series, God, as we looked at got a picture of who you are, Father, and, and your church, and God, what this means for us as a whole. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit, God, is speaking to our heart, God, that we are changed, and that we leave here differently than the way we came in. And in Jesus' mighty name, Father, thank you for this group. Amen. Amen. All right, quick little housekeeping things. If by chance you do have children um, in child care this morning, um, Pastor Matt would, would like if when we do end at 930, if it's best as possible to get them so they can transition to the next stage of children. Um, and then we have, let's see, four weeks here. Um, I'll start off, and then Pastor Freddie here will do weeks two and three. Um, I'll conclude with week four, and then Pastor Ben will do week five, which will be slightly different. There's actually going to be one week gap from whenever we do the fourth to the fifth because Ben will be in Albania. So just we'll go back one more week after that. So I think that's the... 10th, if, I'm, uh, if my number's right, May 10th, no, June 10th, we're in May, um, so it'll just be one, one time there, then the classes will start over again in July, so that'll be the sequence, so if by some chance, which we don't encourage any of you to miss, but if for some reason you have to, it's not the end of the world, come back for the next one, and then you can catch that next one on the next rotation, um, so just to make sure that nobody feels like they got to start, we don't make you start back over from scratch. You can, uh, you can pick up where you left off. Um, so, growth track. Uh, what's it about? I guess, you know, Ben has uh, spoken about it from the, from the pulpit. And the idea here is obviously this is our path as a church towards service inside the church. Um, and, we'll, and actually we'll go into more detail in our last lesson on some specific areas that you can do. But the idea is we just want to show you a picture of one of who, who Living Word Church is. But more importantly why we are a church, what does it mean to be a church, what does it mean to serve God and Jesus Christ, what does that look like for us as believers. Um, so as we go through, there'll be, there's a handful of sections in there where you can fill in the blanks. Um, if you're like me and you get past and you don't realize what's in a blank, you're like trying to hurry up and from your neighbor and find out what you missed, but then you miss everything that's being said in the meantime. So if you're, uh, good morning, you want to get a, get a book here, guys. And then you can actually sign in over there, please. Or actually, go ahead and sign in after. It'll be fine. All right. Thank Good morning. Um, so if you can multitask and ask your neighbor for the number and also listen, go for it. If not, no pressure. Um, we can get you answers after the fact. We won't let you go home without a blank field. Good morning. All right. So it's one hour uh, approximately. We'll try to leave a little bit of time towards the end uh, if there's any questions. Uh, Only easy questions, no hard questions. No, (laughs) I'm joking. Uh, You're free free to ask questions. Um, If at some point you did miss something, feel free to ask me. I I don't mind giving you a blank um, on what we need to do. But as we go through here, as you can see, it's broken up into the four parts. And our first one here, you can turn to page one, is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And we found this to be the most important area for us to start, obviously, because as a believer, the gospel is something that we need to have a very clear understanding of, because if we don't start there, um, then things get out of whack going forward. 
Um, so we're going to start, we're going to begin to break that down. I guess we would consider this, um, I'm not going to say it's the most important message, but it's, it's the right place for us to start. So some of this I'll be reading through, and then we'll also have some dialogue. But let's start here. It says, what is the gospel? This is the most important question that anyone can answer. Okay, it seems like a question that would not need to be asked to a group of believers. Like asking fishermen to sit around and ponder the question, what is a fishing pole? Right? Seems like it should be something pretty basic. You talk to a fisherman and you ask him what a fishing pole is, and he probably would go, what do you mean what is a fishing pole? Right? Well, the same thing should be true for us ultimately as believers when the question is asked of us, what is the gospel? Um, I, I pray that as we get through this, that we will have a similar response in the fact that, like, of course we know what the gospel means. It is what has ultimately saved us, okay? So we're going to go through that. It says here, and look, here's some stats for us. The truth is that 51% of churchgoers, this is according to Barner studies, don't know the Great Commission. Now you say, what does that have to do with the gospel? And, which, and this is it, which ultimately is our call to advance the gospel, so it does beg the question of us, do we understand what the gospel is? Because I would make the argument that the reason why 51% of churchgoers do not advance or go out in the Great Commission is because of their potential understanding of the gospel message and what it has the power to do in lives. So let's start here. The good place for us to, excuse me, our prayers that by the end of this lesson, you will have a clear understanding and a high view of the gospel, allowing you to boldly proclaim it with clarity and accuracy. So a good place for us to start is we're going to begin to look at the word gospel at its most basic level. And I'm going to, this is kind of one of these studies here where you, you get everything right up front in a, in a massive dose, and then we'll go ahead and start kind of breaking it down a little bit. But we're not going to make you wait to the end of the lesson to know what the gospel is. We're going to tell you up front, and then we're going to backfill it. All right, so just looking at it defined, okay? It's the message concerning Christ, the kingdom of God, and salvation. And also, we know it as one of the first four New Testament books that tell of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Pretty basic level. I would dare to say most of you probably would, would, would know that or would have read that at some point and would consider that a basic understanding. But let's look at it a little deeper here. So in Romans 1.15, Paul's speaking to the Romans here, and he says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So that's just an introductory statement he says there. But if we look here in that one, the word gospel in the Greek is you is euangelizo, euangelizo, and it means to bring good news or to announce glad tidings. That's what the word gospel means in there in Romans 1.15. But look what Paul does here when he goes to Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But when we look at the gospel, what the word gospel means there, it's euangelion, so slightly different, but it means a reward for good tidings or for good news. So we see gospel used in two different ways there. One, he talks about just the, the proclaiming of good news, but then he ultimately speaks of what that good news has meant in his life and how it's changed him. That the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel message, is now worked in his life and has, brought, has drawn him unto salvation, and now he goes forth with that. And that, for us, is the advancement of the gospel message. So, 
There's a lot there, and I would encourage you to kind of, kind of look at that a little bit deeper because we won't spend a whole lot of time there. But it's being used in two different ways because it's very specific in that way, that it is the good news, but also it's the good news that's transformed our lives as believers. Everybody with me on that? Clear as mud? All right. All right, so in summary, the gospel message is about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, many of you may come from some different backgrounds that doesn't put as much emphasis maybe on certain parts, particularly maybe the resurrection. You know, we hear a lot about uh, the death and the burial and the crucifixion, which were all key elements, but all three of these elements have to be in place, obviously, to see the gospel in its, in its fullness. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's blank one for you. The gospel message is founded, and this is important, on the authority of God's word, the authority of God's word, not religious tradition. When we get caught up in the traditions of man, traditions of man, we're essentially caught up in the opinions of man. So there's a contrast there between the traditions of man becoming ultimately the opinions of man. And that's why it's so important for us to understand the gospel message. Because if we get outside of the gospel message, if we get outside of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then that's what ends up happening is we begin to do things in our own mind, things that seem to make sense for us, maybe things that we believe are good ideas. But ultimately, if it's outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to be a problem. And what it does is it sets us in a trajectory um, if we understand the gospel message, everything that we add unto ourselves after this as we walk out our lives as believers is in line with that and is, and is good. But when we get outside the gospel message, it sends us off in a trajectory in another direction. And what happens with anything when you, if any of you about it shooting here, whether it be a gun, bow and arrow, basketball, you know, where it's leave, when it leaves your hand, it's at, you know, point zero. But where it's aimed, by the time it gets to its target, is either right where it needs to be or it's way off of where it needs to be. And that's kind of what we want to look at here as we look at the gospel message. If we don't start off at the right spot and we don't move forward from there, you know, four, five, six, 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, um, you're liable to be in some level of heresy. And that's what Paul's writing to throughout all of the, all of the New Testament as he's, he's speaking of that because that's exactly what ends up happening. So the simple definition of the word gospel is good, is good news. Because it is good news. Paul said it was, it was good news, and then he was, he was excited about going out and telling, telling the world about it. Now we're going to break it down even further. To properly understand the good news, we must look at four basic realities that make up the core of the gospel. Four basic realities. Our first point is this. That God is creator, and he is holy. That God is creator, and he is holy. Everybody got that? All right, so we must first understand that God is the creator. If we fail to start with this understanding, we will ultimately fail to understand the meaning of our existence. Let's look here in Genesis 1, 1 through 2. It says, And in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then he adds to this in Genesis 1.27 a little further. He said, so God created man 
in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's, once again, there's this picture, and we have to have Ryan understanding. This, this is, now, this is, remember, all we do now, we're backfilling what we know that the gospel message is. And when we see that God is the creator and he is holy, as a believer, it is of the utmost importance that we understand that, that we are not the creator, that he is, and we are the creation. Um, and we'll see how that kind of plays out for us. But it says there very specifically that he created. Um, and when we have that understanding, he begins to set our alignment in place. There's two main points to understand from these verses in Genesis. In 1, 1 through 2, that God created the world. That was first, that God created the world. And then the second thing for us is that God created you. And we also notice it says that he created you in his image. Because God is the creator and we are the created, he, is, he has ultimate authority over our lives as his creation. Anybody struggle with that? The idea that he has ultimate authority in your life as a believer? It's what you're going to fight against the rest of your life, by the way. Um, but you can still be okay with it, or you should be okay with it. Um, God is sovereign over his creation, and by nature, and because of that, he is holy. To say that God is holy is to say that he is separate from his creation, and he is other than us. Guys, we serve a God that's far bigger than us, a God that is far more um, magnanimous than we will ever be. And there's all what comes with that, and this is where our problem comes in, and we're going to see this repeat itself. What comes in, the struggle for us is this, is that there are times when we're actually not okay with that um, because it probably steps into areas of your life that you really are not interested in him being Lord over. Um, and that's when sin happens, ultimately. But if we understand what we're spo- where we're supposed to be in the beginning, it helps us in those moments because then the Holy Spirit prayerfully convicts our heart and brings us to a place of repentance in that. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen says this about God. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place. Now, because God is holy, he cannot allow sin to dwell in his presence. He cannot allow sin to dwell in his presence. And at that statement there, you might be starting to think, uh-oh, man, this is, that's a tough line. But we're going to get into a little bit further what that means. But it is true that sin does not dwell in his presence. Psalms 55, 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And that's the reality of God, of who God is. Um, God cannot tolerate sin and will bring justice to sin, ultimately, right? Have you heard that before? It's probably from maybe your mom. She might have told it to you or your grandma. Um, But it is still true. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, For God will bring every deed unto judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And Isaiah 13, 11 says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So that's pretty serious words. You know, I think about in my life, and probably you're similar in yours, whenever we see heinous crimes, whenever we see things that, you know, we just can't believe happen, whether it be criminal intent, some sort of terrorist activity, I mean, we are very quick to say and very quick to feel that that person should be judged for their sin, right? Typically, yeah. I mean, and, and rightfully so. I mean, it was, it's, a, it's an atrocious situation. But what do we, what do, we do whenever we 
or the person that creates the sin. Maybe we don't consider it on that level, but when we sin, which is a separation of God, do we have that same conviction for that sin in our own life as we do for someone in someone else's? Most times, most times we don't. That's just the reality. Look, Greg Gilbert tells us right here, he says, you see, nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil, right? They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil, right? Is that not true? Is that not so true? You know, because we do put levels on, on sin. Um, but the reality is sin at, at every level is a separation from God, plain and simple, because it says that he cannot dwell there, right? So it is, it is separation of that. So we see here that God is the creator. We see that he is holy, and we see the, just the reality of what that means. But look, now we're going to start to understand some of that, what the, how that plays into us. Because point two is, is humanity is sinful. Humanity is sinful. And if you're confused, we are humanity. Everyone in here is humanity. Just in case you were thinking it was maybe your neighbor. We all fall there. All right, so it asks the question, what went wrong? What went wrong? So we first, we looked at God. We looked at the purity of who he is. Now we're going to look at ourselves. What went wrong? Genesis 3. And this is just a, a, basically a summary that Adam and Eve rebel against God's command, setting the trajectory for all mankind from that point on. So as we know in the story, Adam and Eve obviously disobeyed. Uh, and because of that, that separation that we now know, that we now experience, um, of course, we're on this side of the cross. It's a little bit different. But we see that it set that trajectory for all mankind, just like we talked about. They got outside of who God was, and it just began to shoot them off in the wrong direction, right? Man is the created. Man is the created. And man is in rebellion against the creator, which is the exact same place that you and I are today um, when we deal with our sin. Now, when I say man there, I do mean mankind, so you ladies are not off the hook. Um, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 3.10, he backs up a little before, he says that none is righteous, no, not one. And for some of us, that may, you know, maybe that's offensive to you, maybe it's not, but it is the reality, once again, of the gospel message of why ultimately it has to work in our lives. Romans 3.10 tells us this sobering reality that everyone is guilty and no one is righteous in and of ourselves, right? Everyone is guilty and no one is righteous. The prophet Jeremiah expounds on the true condition of the human heart. When we look at 17.9, it says, the heart, this is on page four, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's a profound verse, right? Because I'm sure at some point in your life, you're like, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty good person. I do good things. But what, is, what does Scripture tell us? That is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we're going to see as we get into it why this is important that we understand the reality of the heart of man. We must see our sin in the correct light. It is what separates us from a holy God. We are the criminal who is the unrighteous and deserving of judgment. It's what separates us from a holy God. And we are the criminal who is unrighteous and deserving of judgment. Any of you here see yourself as a criminal? Maybe some of you were at one point, literally. 
And I don't mean to call you out if you were. But in the eyes of God, as we get done, we're going we're to build up to it. We are, we are the criminal. We are the one that is separated from a holy God. Romans 6.23, the first part of it says, For the wages of sin is death. It's plain and simple. There's no other, there's no other, there's no other option there. The wage of sin, the payment for sin, is death. Unfortunately, in our culture today, we see ourselves as victims. And when you see yourself as the victim, you are looking elsewhere for the perpetrator. When in fact, the perpetrator is you. When in fact, the perpetrator, that's P-E-R-P-E-T-R-A-T-O-R. You can spell check that later. Or if you could do like they do in criminal mind, just write perp. All right. So that's a, uh, what's that? <laughs> yeah, that's right, an unsub, until you get to that point of being the perpetrator. Um, so the picture there for us, and, and, and our, our culture is there. I mean, we live in this culture. We see it over and over again that we live in a culture, um, and this is not unique to uh, home of Louisiana. There's this idea of, of entitlement that seeks into everything and that, you know, we're a victim and we're always trying, you know, everybody's trying to always get over on the little man, right? So in our culture, it flights against already who we are. It speaks to why we believe what we believe. But we are, we are, not, um, we are not the victim. We, in fact, are the perpetrator in our sin, in our sin. At this point, we're left with a big problem. How can sinful humanity be reconciled to their creator? How can sinful humanity be reconciled to their creator? Because we've looked at the reality of who God is and that he is, he is holy and he is the creator and sin cannot dwell with him. And then we look at a picture of ourselves and we are the picture of humanity of sin. So there's an obvious problem there, right? right? They don't mix. It's, it's all in water at this point. Our fallen human inclination is to work our way out of this mess. And every world religion besides Christianity is based upon a foundation of self-help and works-based righteousness. Works-based righteousness. But the gospel points us, and what's the gospel? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the only solution for humanity's sin problem. And that brings us to point three. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the solution. We're going to step back here. Let's look back at Genesis at the fall, and we're going to catch a hint of this good news that he alluded to, that was alluded to in Genesis 3.15, toward the second part. He's He's speaking to him here, and he says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's having that conversation there with Adam and Eve and the, and the devil. And he's saying that he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. So what he, that's a foreshadowing for us that there was going to be redemption in the future. You, you, you may have felt like you have won at this point, and maybe you've, and you've created some havoc. But just know, just know the solution is on the way, right? Okay? God wanted Adam and Eve and us to see that that story was not over. Because from that point on, as the Bible begins to unfold a plan for a Savior, who is Christ Jesus. So from, from Genesis, ultimately when we get to Revelation, the entire story is about Jesus Christ. And he's alluding to it here for us to see. So it begs us the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is fully God 
and fully man. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then Hebrews 4.15 speaks to his, to his being fully man. It says, for, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as, as we are, yet, and this, is a big, and this is a big deal, that yet's a big deal, without sin. Yet without sin. For thousands of years there was a promise of a king to come, and now he's finally here walking the earth. And this would be speaking to the time of the, the New Testament being played out. And then Luke 1, 32-33 says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord, and God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And John 1, 29 says, The next day he, they saw Jesus coming toward him, and they said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we back up that God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that, too, is another very key part that we have to understand as believers, that the incarnate God walked this earth. When we go through the, when we go through the epistles, particularly John's is very explicit through it, he speaks about the idea that the church was struggling with this idea that Jesus and God were one and the same. Because they knew of God. If you, were, if you were a Jew at that time, you understood fully who God was, and you understood him as, as a, if you were a believer in that time and believed in him, then you also knew that there was a promise of a Messiah, right? But think, put yourself in that situation today. You know, you, know of this, you know of this God. You understand everything about him. You've memorized scripture. You've walked it out. You've done everything, and there's this, this idea that there's going to be a Messiah to come, and, but you don't know when. I mean, there's some illusion to it, obviously, in the Old Testament, uh, but you don't know when. I think about it like for us today. Like, we know that Christ is going to come back, right? But tell me what generation didn't think it was going to be their generation, right? And we've had an awful lot of generations pass. I mean, I know in my own life, I mean, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's happening. I mean, I can remember being in college thinking, you know, I don't guess it really matters what I really study because, I mean, I'm, he'll be back by the time I graduate anyway, <laughs> right? Well, that was 10 years ago. So I'm thankful that uh, I did pick a path and decided to stick to it in lieu of his return. But the same thing was going on there. So that's a big deal. I think it's a little bit easier for us to see it. I think the struggle we have is to actually believe it, that Jesus and God are one and the same. That's where the struggle comes for us. See, they didn't even know when it was going to happen. And then when it did, there was obviously the understanding of that. But we know it happened, right? And that's where the faith part comes in for us, which we'll get to a little bit later as well. So going back down after John one twenty nine, it says, When he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the first century Jew would have known what? That this was a reference uh, to the Jewish festival of Passover. When they talked about any time in that time about a lamb and a sacrifice, they would be speaking to the Passover, which happened when, they, when the Israelites were being um, saved out of Egypt. And, they had to, and the Passover took place. Remember that? They were asked to put the blood over their doorposts. An angel of death went by, and if you didn't have it, your firstborn uh, man and beast was taken. So they celebrated that every year. Well, it's not by chance, guys, that the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, is coming in at the same time of Passover, now here, thousands of years later. 
is taking place. So, the, so that, that, a Jew in that day would have understood what that meant. And I'm not saying we don't, but I'm saying that would have perked up their ears when they would have heard that. That would have been a big deal for them. Because year after year, the blood of lambs would atone. And when something atone, it's, it substitutes, atone slash substitute for the sins of another. But the problem is, is that it didn't last and the ritual was performed over and over again, right? There was a, there was a providing of a, a lamb or different animals without blemish, and they would use that to atone for that time. But guess what? They had to do it over again, right? Because as soon as that animal was sacrificed, that blood did what? It died. It, it, it no longer sustained life anymore. So this was going over and over again, and that's not by chance. I mean, God put that in place. Once again, that was a foreshadowing of ultimately how he was going to save mankind through a perfect sacrifice. But now... And just remember this, anytime you're in Scripture, anytime you're studying, there's always pay attention to the buts. Because those conjunctions there usually take you from one place to another. And if you grasp where you came from and where you're going, it just opens up your mind to the, to the revelation, ultimately, of what, of what Christ is showing us here. But a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice, was now walking the earth. There would be the final atonement for the sins of those who believe. That's important for the sins of those who believe. And Jesus knew why he was the, why he and Jesus knew why he was here as a man. So he's walking the earth as a man at that point, but he ultimately knew what he was there for and what was going to take place. Because remember, our point here is that Jesus is the solution. John ten fifteen and then eighteen says, "Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep." And verse 18 says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So he understands that. You know, when he's praying in the garden, what does he, what does he pray? If this cup could pass him by, right? But he also knows that the reality of it is that it has to happen. It is, it is, it is necessary for the atonement of all mankind. And I love what it says there. It says that you know, he just speaks to back to the reality that he and the Father are one and the same. Like that I laid down my life for the sheep. Well, guys, the sheep are those, are, are, are those of us that have named the name of Christ. You know, the Bible calls us the ecclesia, which is the called out ones. Um, and we are the sheep that are being shepherded ultimately by his sacrifice. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And guys, that is the ultimate healing that we receive from Christ Jesus, is that our, our heart is transformed, and that we, are, we, are, we are now go from that place of being separated from God to now being in the very presence of. When Jesus suffered on the cross, and this is important, we have to catch this, it was not his sins that he was punished for, but it was our sins that he was punished for. A righteous and holy God can justify the ungodly because in Jesus' death, mercy and justice were perfectly reconciled. The curse was righteously executed, and we were mercifully saved. You know, in that moment, he bore the sin of all mankind, mercy and justice. He bore the sin of all mankind in that moment. You know, what does he say when he's on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why have you forsaken me? And this speaks back to what we talked about with God being the creator and being holy. He cannot dwell in sin. He and sin cannot be in the same place. And, here, and there we, in that moment, we see him drawing himself away from his son. And, it's just, and Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? As the sin of all mankind was rested upon him. All of this is made complete because Jesus is risen. And that's why it's so important that we understand in the gospel that it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection. You know, I can remember growing up, going to some plays where there was the death and there was the burial. And then there was just fellowship and cake and coffee. You know, they, the resurrection was, was missed as part, of the, as part of the skit. But guys, it's important that the resurrection has to happen because that's what separates us from every other religion in this world. Had Jesus not have risen from the dead, his death would have counted for nothing. Romans eight thirty three through 34 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Now we're left with the most critical element is how do we respond? How do we respond? Because now that perfect sacrifice has taken place, and now the blood of Jesus is ever testifying. It's not something that's got to be done ever again. Hebrews tells us that it was done once and for all, never, never to be done again, never to be needed again. But it leaves us with a question is how do we respond? Everyone will respond to the gospel, okay? People will either believe and repent, we either believe and repent, or they will deny and reject, or they will deny and reject. So you will have to, at some point, respond to the gospel. It's in, it, it, it is going to happen, okay? So that brings us to point number four, that everyone must respond. Everyone must respond. But remember, there's two responses, potentially, right? But we're going to talk about where we are as believers, specifically. A response to the good news of Jesus is required for the fulfillment of the gospel message in our lives. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that word gospel speaks back to where we looked at in Romans, that it is, it's the good news. It's the good news of what Christ did. Acts 2.38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We must turn from our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as, as, as we walk through this life, and for those of you who may have experienced it at different times, when the Holy Spirit was drawing your heart, and then you res- we, what we're responding to is the drawing of the Holy Spirit, and then we're ultimately responding to the gospel message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we have belief, right? For God so loved the world that he was his only begotten Son, so that whoever would believe in him, right? Believing is, what's, is, is the key part here. Because in order for us to believe in something means we have to seen something or have experienced something or heard something. If, you don't, if, if, the, if that doesn't take place first, what are we going to believe in? What is there for us to believe in unless something was first shown to us? Um, and that's the Holy Spirit's drawing on our heart that takes place. Look at, look at Abraham here 
He's being a, this is obviously in Romans, but he's alluding back to him. He says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Remember, God gave him that promise. And as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He numbered as many as the stars. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. He was old. Abraham was probably somewhere around 100 years old at this point, which was, which was as good as dead. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So that's even an allusion for us there when he's speaking to Abraham. Obviously, he wasn't during the New Testament. He didn't experience the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But there's an allusion to it that he, had, he believed in, in the story and believed what God had for him. The gospel of Jesus Christ does the very same thing for us. Put our faith in Jesus, rely on him, and trust him to do what he has promised to do. Trust him to do what he has promised to do. So that brings us to the next question. What do we need to have faith in? What do we need to have faith in? When Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sin, he restored our relationship with the Father, and he now counts us as righteousness before him. Look what it says in Romans three twenty-one through 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So now it ties it all back together. We looked at the reality of God, the reality that he is creator, that he is holy. We looked at us as humanity, that we are sinful, and in that sin we are separate from God. We looked at the fact that Jesus is the solution for that, that bridges that gap between God and mankind. And now once we respond to it, then that becomes real in our life. And that's what Paul said in Romans 1.16. He says, for now I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For what is the, because he's what he's, why he's not ashamed? Because he's not ashamed of what it did for him in his life. And then he goes forth preaching it out to everyone because it brings salvation unto all those who believe. Salvation is not something we can earn, nor does something we deserve. And that's another sticking point for us, right? Because so many times we, you know, because we feel, because we've been working towards it, we feel like we've done the right things, we've done the things we're supposed to do, then we deserve it, right? Right? I checked off all the boxes. I went to church on Sunday. I went to church on Wednesday. I joined the life group. I drove the golf cart. I picked up a piece of trash when I wasn't supposed to. And I prayed, Jesus, you owe me salvation. Right? No. Incorrect. We do not deserve it. Uh, but, you know, as we, as we see in the, in the book of James, he kind of he he throws it out there for us for us to see that but works are a part of this. Right? But works are in response to what the gospel message has done in our life. So there should be good works, and they should take place, and we should desire them, and we should want, and we should want to see them worked on in our life, but it's not what saves us. It's not what gets us to that place. Salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. Grace alone is the unmerited favor in our lives. We, we do not deserve it. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law 
no one will be justified. Now, because of this reality in our lives as believers, we are forever changed, and our life should reflect it. You know, in Galatians there, when he's speaking of that, of the reality of, of the being justified by Christ and then the reality that works are not a part of it, you go a little bit further on in the book, and, it, and he specifically tells us that the law was designed to be a tutor or a guardian for, for everyone leading up that to show them, obviously to show them a way of righteousness, but more importantly to show them that it was unattainable in of themselves. Right? That following all the laws of the Old Testament, it's impossible for us to attain. It really is. And that was God's, and that speaks back to God being holy and being a creator, that his, we, are, we are not at his standard. In of ourselves, we cannot attain that. But, and we jump over to point three, that Jesus ultimately bridges that gap for us and that reality of what happens. Now, because of this reality in our lives as a believer, we're forever changed. Now that we have a clear understanding of the gospel, which is my prayer, we can walk out the Great Commission. And I want us to look at that. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And look, there it, it speaks, it says just to go therefore and make disciples, right? It says baptizing them. Well, we understand that if, if they're baptizing people, then that means people are what? come into the saving knowledge of who Christ Jesus is. And it says, how does that happen? To the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Well, how are we going to teach them all that God commanded? And this is going to, where our next message will get to our next lesson, is we're going to begin to look at the authority of God's word. It's going to be in the next session. Because if we want to effectively advance advance the gospel, firstly, we understand that it is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's the power of that in our own lives. But then for order for us to go out and to have the correct trajectory from there, now we've got to understand his word. Now we've got to understand his teachings, and now we've got to be able to go out and replicate that as well. So remember when we talked about what that stat was, that 51% of believers don't understand um, the, really the reality of the Great Commission? Well, I believe it's because that probably same 51% is, probably doesn't totally understand the reality of the gospel message. Because what does Paul say? Once it, he, didn't, he, didn't, he was not ashamed of it. Why? And he couldn't, he couldn't be silenced in it because he knew the power of what it changed in his life. And he had one choice, and that was to go out and to proclaim it. So we looked at, just to recap, one, that God is the creator and he's holy. Two, that humanity is sinful. Three, that Jesus is the solution. And the fourth one is that we must respond to that. And for us as believers, that we believe in what Jesus Christ and his gospel message. What do you think? Clear? Any, anything not clear? Any questions? Any blanks you didn't get filled in? Anything that anybody... Maybe didn't, maybe didn't, it wasn't like you didn't think it was like that. The gospel message wasn't, uh, maybe you thought it was something different. Anything at all? Pastor Matt, you brought up a very interesting point about people when they said, Behold the Lamb of God that take away the sins of the world. And that you understood that in the Passover, that would resonate with them. And I think that's one of the biggest um, uh, 
I guess, most confusing thing is that here's the lamb that's standing before these Jewish people, and he knows, Christ knows, what to say to them to try to get them to see who he was. But I think the biggest problem with their hearing, the religious leaders, was that they were more geopolitical versus divine, because they were looking for a type of Moses uh, to deliver them from Roman oppression. And here was the one that stood, that was standing before them, giving them all the clues, dropping nuggets all over the place. And they just did not want to get it because they had, I guess, projected uh, a type of Christ, the Messiah, a different type of Messiah in their own mind. And I think today, in the uh, 20th, 21st century, uh, that's what we fall to a lot because we, we project an image of God in our mind other than the one that's being projected from the end of the world. No, because you see, even during that time, as I think about this, you know, as Jesus is walking the earth, the assumption for us, at least it was for me, maybe I'm different, is that as he's walking by, everybody goes, oh, look, it's Jesus. Look at him passing by. But you know what the reality is, is if you didn't know anything about Jesus, you know, because John the Baptist is standing there with his disciples, and he has to specifically point out to them that that's Jesus Christ walking right there. Had he not told them about it, they would have not have known. You know, so the reality is, is that you're right, they were... What were they looking for? Now, obviously, when Christ comes back on his second time, I think we're going to all well know what's going on, obviously, as we see piles of clothes in some places and we hear loud noises. But the reality is in that time, um, you know, unless, unless it was revealed to them, which is the same thing for us today, unless the Holy Spirit reveals to our heart who Christ is, uh, what are you going to believe in? Other than that, he's just another guy walking around in the crowd. Now, especially if you have a narrow mind and you're looking for some particular particular person or uh, type of person. That's good. Isaiah prophesied that that he would have no form of comeliness. He would even understand that he be despised. Probably is, you know, uh, recognized as somebody below what they expected. Correct. Yeah, that's right. What else? Chuck did record this, um, and it will be available on the website for the audio. Um, but at the end, if, so, if you are interested in actually a CD version of it, um, just get with Chuck, and he can provide that for you as well. Uh, just as a side note, Chuck's the uh, Wizard of Oz back there behind the, uh, behind the board, working, working all his magic back there. Thank you, Chuck. All right, anything else? Any other questions, comments, concerns, snide remarks? Yeah, thank y'all. Look, this is, this is so exciting for us as a church. You know, I mean, guys, we are the church here. We are the ecclesia, uh, the called out ones. And, you know, we represent obviously a, just a small portion, uh, ultimately, of the, of the universal church. But here at Living Word, I mean, you guys are the ones that are, will be out there advancing this gospel message. You know, serving here in any in, in different capacities, um, and just just growing growing in Christ because this isn't um, you know, and, he, and he'll tell you this. This is not Ben Bufkin's church. Uh, this is not anybody's church. This is this is God's church, and we're here to steward it well. And you know, we are we are to be shepherded well, and we are to go out from here. So I, I just you know, growth track and you know, put whatever name you want on it. But the idea of doing this is just it's just so exciting. Uh, to me, I know our staff, Freddie's going to be um, supporting throughout this one here. We got Pastor Clyde here this morning as well. You know, all of us will be working together through this growth track process. And, um, man, it's exciting. 
You know, I mean, I'm leading up, you know, all of our uh, preparation for this. And then just last night, I kept every time I woke up, you know, I just was it's just exciting to to be able to just come here and just and to be able to have this discussion and mostly for us to see who God is and the reality of what that means for us and why it is so powerful of what Paul says there in Romans 1, 15 and 16. So uh, I'm excited. Uh, next, next week on uh, 8.30, Pastor Freddie's going to be on the power of God's Word. So be here again for the same thing over. If you happen to cross somebody and they say, oh, man, I forgot about it, um, it's okay. Tell them to come, tell them to, come to the second one, um, and we'll catch them back up on the flip side around. We want to we wanna get everybody in as much as possible. We'll be the same setup when you come in, uh, sign in, get you some coffee you like, and I think we might even have donuts for you next week. Um, for those of you that like that. But if you've got any questions, I'm going to close us out in prayer. Pastor Freddie said, sweet. (laughs) Anything else? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. God, I pray, Father, that you seal this in our heart, God, that, that you are a holy God, Father. And God, we thank you for the gospel message. And we thank you for your death, your burial and your resurrection. God, that separates you from any other religion in this world, God, that you are risen, and that you are ever testifying on our behalf. And God, I pray, God, that we, as we go forth from here, God, as we can work just through the formality of growth track, but God, in our own lives as, as believers, Father, that you are molding us and you're shaping us. God, that we are diligent, Father, to get into your word, God, and we begin to see the your revelation just illuminated in our hearts and in our lives and the reality of what that means for us as we apply it in each and every situation. God, thank you for this group. God, thank you for the work that you're doing. And in Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.